Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you uh, for this, your word. Uh, please give us ears that are attentive to your voice. Uh, please, uh, please comfort us where we need comforting. Please uh, correct us where we need correcting. Uh, please train us and teach us where we need that, we pray. Amen. Uh, well, uh, we've heard from Ken earlier after church today. Those of you who are officially members of uh, this church uh, are going to be voting on who you would like to be your minister, your, your pastor. Uh, so maybe it's, maybe it's no accident that today and in God's providence, I get to preach on this passage from Malachi chapter 2, a passage that is all about godly and ungodly pastors. Uh, of course, last week we, uh, we looked at the end of chapter 1. Uh, if you weren't here, you can uh, have a listen to that sermon. Uh, but we saw in that passage that the priests of Israel, the leaders of Israel, uh, were showing contempt for God's name by offering him uh, what God called defiled sacrifices. Right? So animals that were blind or lame or diseased, animals uh, that did not put on display the full uh, perfection of God's holiness. Like God's perfect, he's glorious, he's holy, uh, so he ought to receive unblemished sacrifices. Uh, but the priests were offering these blemished sacrifices. But uh, at the end of that chapter, in verse 14, uh, it's pretty clear that the problem of these defiled sacrifices was much broader than just the priests. So if you've got a Bible, you'll see there in verse 14, God said, uh, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable uh, male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Uh, so it seems that there are actually lots of cheats amongst the Israelites. Plenty of people uh, who are trying to cheat God by offering him blemished sacrifices. Right? Thinking to themselves, you know, if I offer God this blind or lame, this, uh, this disabled animal, I'm going to be able to make plenty of money off my healthy animals. Right? That's the mindset. So I'll offer this worthless animal so I can keep these uh, money-making animals to myself. Uh, so Israel's priests are leading all of God's people into what God labels as useless worship. A worship that shows real contempt for his name. Uh, today's passage continues that theme of showing contempt for God's name, uh, but really it's even more focused on the priests. Have a look in verse 1. God says, And now, you priests, this warning is for you. Now, we read the Bible, we hear all this talk of priests. Uh, really, it should raise some questions. Right? There's a couple of questions there. You can see them in there on the outline. The first question is, are there any priests today? Now, I know that there are people who call themselves priests. I meet plenty of them in my line of work. Uh, but if actually, if you read through the New Testament, uh, you won't find any mention of priests at least not the official role of priest. I'm sure that there are a couple of places that refer to all of God's people as priests. So 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you, God's people, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So there's a general sense. We, as God's people, are priests. Because Peter's saying, as we proclaim and live out the good news about Christ, we act as mediators between God and people. So in that sense, we've got this mediating type role, this priestly role. But there's no particular office of priest in the New Testament, no role of priest. Right? Why is that? 
Well, in the Old Testament, Israel's priests had two main roles. Where we see them both at the end of Malachi 1 and the start of Malachi 2. They're offering sacrifices and teaching God's word. But in the New Testament, after Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, the sacrificial role of the priest isn't needed anymore. There's a couple of verses from Hebrews. Right, Hebrews uh, chapter 7, you can write them down if you like, or if you're a quick flicker, you can get to it. But Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25 say this. And they say, Now there uh, have been many of those priests, whether well, that's Old Testament priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You see see what the writer is saying? He's saying there were lots of priests in the past, lots and lots of priests, because they all kept dying, you see. There was this big problem. They couldn't keep mediating between God and his people because they all kept dying. But Christ is different. Christ Christ conquered death and now he lives and reigns at his father's right hand. Uh, So he is able, uh, he's got this permanent priesthood, an eternal priesthood. He's able to save people completely now and forever as they come to God through trusting in him. So that's the, the, the first big thing. No need for priests because Christ is our great high priest. And no need for sacrifices because Christ is our once-for-all sacrifice. So Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12, another verse you can look up. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 uh, says, But when Christ came as our high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats or calves, But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. There's lots of detail there. We're not preaching through Hebrews. I don't have time to explain all of that. But but the key thing I want you to get is that Christ's death on the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice. Once-for-all. Eternal redemption purchased once and for all when Jesus gave his life on the cross. So so no need for more priests because Christ is our great high priest and no need for more sacrifices because Christ is our once for all sacrifice. That's why when you read through the New Testament, in the New Testament church, in our church today, no continuing office of priests. No need. In fact, in many ways, churches that do have priests today uh, tend, not always, but tend to minimize the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross. But to take the Catholic Church, for example. If you're here and you're a Catholic, I don't have anything personally against you. I'm not hostile to you. But the doctrine of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Catholic Church has lots of priests. We know that. Priests who have a very elevated status. Right? Why is that? Well, it's because Catholic doctrine officially teaches that in the Mass, right? that's what we call the Lord's Supper, they officially teach that the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus. So every time the Mass is observed, the Catholic priest is re-sacrificing Christ. Literally. What does that say about Christ's work as our great high priest? It says it wasn't enough, doesn't it? 
it wasn't quite sufficient, right? Well, we need lots more priests to do the work. And what does it say about Christ's sacrifice on the cross? Well, really, it says it wasn't quite enough. It wasn't once for all, actually. I know the Bible says that, but really, we've got to have sacrifices over and over again. More sacrifices? No, the Bible says. You don't need more priests because Christ is our great high priest. We don't need more sacrifices because Christ is our once-for-all sacrifice. So the ministry of the priest at the end of Malachi chapter 1, that stops with Jesus. On the other hand, the teaching ministry of these Old Testament priests, which we look at in today's passage, continues in the New Testament. Are not under the title of priest, because that would just be confusing. We don't want to muddy the waters with all that Old Testament sacrificial stuff. So the title it's under is the title of pastor-teacher or elder. So Ephesians chapter 4, for example, verses 11 and 12, uh, say this. They say, so Christ, as in the context, Christ has ascended on high. He's poured out gifts on his people. And in verse 11, Paul says, so Christ himself gave to his church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers. So sometimes, sometimes translations separate those for two different things, but really it's, it's one word, pastor teachers. So this continuing role of teachers in the New Testament church. Or, or Titus 1, verse 9, says this. It says, uh, The overseer, the elder, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Right, so the, the teaching ministry of these Old Testament priests continues today in the role of pastors, people like me, elders. Our church has elders. So why then is this passage relevant for you? Well, it might be relevant for me, like I'm a pastor, at least I can read it, and the elders perhaps. Right? But why is it relevant for all of us? Well, I hinted at the start, it's at least relevant for those of you who are regulars here at Darwin Prezi, particularly those of you who are members, uh, because you're going through the process of calling and inducting a minister. Right? Someone who, who's going to have the primary responsibility for teaching you God's Word. So as we look at the details of this passage tonight, you should really ask yourself, like I know some of you think that's a done deal, Aaron's been our pastor for five years. Or you should, this is a sobering thing. You should ask yourself, to what extent does this minister that we intend to call embody what this passage has to say about godly pastors? You should ask that. Uh, perhaps you're not a regular here, but maybe you're deciding which church I want to be a part of. If that's you, you should ask yourself, to what extent does the pastor of this church or that church embody what this passage has to say about godly pastors? This passage is relevant for us. So let's look at it. Have a look first. Uh, let's look at what I've called the portrait of ungodly pastors. Ungodly pastors. Look here, in verse 2, there's a few failures of these priests in verse 2, the first failure of these ungodly priests is that they fail to listen to God's word. God says to them, if you do not listen, they haven't been listening to him. And the greatest danger for any pastor is that they stop listening to God's word. That's the greatest danger. That God's voice is just drowned out by the voice of their culture, uh, their community, even the voices of their congregation sometimes. 
Right? This is dangerous because the pastor's main role in the church is to listen to God's word in the scriptures and to declare God's word to God's people. Right? That's why verse 7, look at verse 7, it calls uh, priests, these pa- uh, pastors, messengers of the Lord Almighty. Right? Oh, I'm thoroughly convinced that every Sunday the only useful thing I have to say to you is what I've heard from God's Word. That's the only useful thing I have to say. I'm a messenger of the Lord Almighty. I hear and then I herald. I listen and then I preach. So the first failure of these priests is their failure to listen to God's Word. They will not listen. Their second failure is their failure to have a real passion for God's glory. Have a look in verse 2. God says, if you do not resolve to honour my name. Some of you might have the English, the ESV translation, different translation. It says, if you do not lay it upon your heart to honour my name. That's probably a better translation. The failure of these priests is that they just don't have a real heart, a passion, a deep desire that God would be glorified. Sure, they might be able to tick some doctrinal boxes. It might be a part of their preaching in some superficial sense. But it hasn't been laid upon their heart that they've got a passion for the glory of God. And that, that is a recipe for disaster in a pastor. Where you end up chasing shadows, doing ministry for yourself and your own glory rather than for God and his glory. But a pastor should have a deep passion. It should be laid upon his heart, a passion for the glory of God, a passion that you should be able to hear. It should kind of ooze out of them, whether they're in public or in private. No good if it just comes out in their preaching, but you talk to them in person, it seems they couldn't care less about God. No, in, in public and in private, in their preaching and in their prayers, uh, in times of joy and in times of sorrow, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, it should be abundantly clear that this is a man who is on about, who's got a deep passion for the glory of God. That's central. Not these priests. They had not resolved to honour God's name. That wasn't what drove them. Their third failure was their failure to walk in God's ways. See this a couple of times. Verse 8, for example, says they have turned from God's ways. Verse 9 says that they have not followed God's ways. Uh, It's pretty likely that these ungodly priests were still talking the talk, turning up at the temple, saying all the right things, but they weren't practicing what they preached. They weren't walking the walk. Their whole ministry, God can see through that, right? He can see that their whole ministry is really just a sham, full of all sorts of hypocrisy. That's the third failure, failing to follow God's ways. Their fourth failure is their failure to be impartial in their teaching of God's word. Look at the end of verse 9. God says, these priests have shown partiality in matters of the law. Essentially, they're doing the same thing with their teaching of God's word as they were doing with the sacrifices. Remember that they're only offering the sacrifices to God that weren't worth any money, that could maximize their profits. Right here, uh, in their teaching, they're doing whatever it takes to maximize profits. They're doing the mass, the calculation. So they're showing partiality with God's word. I'll teach these bits and not these bits because they're more popular. People like them. They come to the temple more. They bring bigger tithes and offerings and that looks good for me. 
They're like the leaders of Micah, uh, Micah chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, uh, Israel's leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. That's these priests, teaching for a price, only teaching things that bring them increased popularity and bring more tithes and offerings into the temple. So what's the result of this kind of ministry? Well, they lead many people to destruction. Look in verse 8. By their teaching, these priests have caused many to stumble. Now, sometimes we read that in the Bible with this idea of causing someone to stumble and we think, well, that's not a big deal. It's just a little trip, right? It's a little stumble. But throughout the Bible, causing someone to stumble is a picture of causing someone to fall into God's judgment. You remember Jesus. Jesus was scathing in his criticism of leaders uh, who caused people to stumble. In Matthew 18, verses 6 and 7, Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, these who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. And notice this bit. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Woe to the Christian leader who causes people to stumble. But it's clear from this passage, Matthew 18, Malachi 2, throughout the Bible, uh, that the sins of Christian leaders are much more serious than others. And that's not to say that my sin in and of itself is more sinful than yours, uh, but my sin is much more likely to turn people away from God's word, from Christ, from his church. Therefore, it is judged more strictly James 3, verse 1, James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. You can see that strictness in Malachi 2, can't you? God is absolutely outraged at these ungodly priests. Several times, verse 2, God says, I'm going to send a curse on you. I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honour me. A bit of background here, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, uh, God warned his people that if they did not obey him, if they weren't careful to follow all his commands and decrees, uh, all sorts of curses would come down upon them. So here Malachi is saying that that because of their despicable sacrifices and their corrupt teaching, these ungodly priests have broken their covenant with God, and so now all the curses of that are going to come down on them in God's judgment. So much so, Malachi says, uh, that the words that they speak that are supposed to be a blessing to God's people uh, are now going to return upon them as a curse. I will curse your blessings. The more they open their mouths, pretending to speak words of blessing, the more those words are are going to pile up on their heads as a curse of God's judgment. That's strong. In verse 3, God says, Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. 
That is a bit tricky. The, the word descendants there is just seed. Just the, the word seed. Uh, so it could refer to the seed of their own children. In which case God's saying that the actions of these priests are going to have big spiritual consequences for their own children. And don't we see that with ungodly pastors whose kids have walked away from the faith? Why should they take it seriously if their dad was such a hypocrite, you see? Right? Or it could refer to actual seed, right? the seed of the harvest. Uh, because if the harvests are bad, uh, the, the tithes and offerings that these priests depend upon are going to dry up. But either way, the point is that the sin of these priests is horrendous because it brings the curse of God's judgment, not just on them, but at least on their own children and probably on the whole people of God. So God is outraged at them. Outraged. I don't know if you missed it when Stu read it. Look again in verse 3. God says, I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices. I've been pretty angry in my life with some people. I don't know that I've ever been angry enough to think that I would like to smear feces in someone's face. That's angry. That's how angry God is with these ungodly priests, ungodly Christian leaders. In verse 9, he says, I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. Either these priests who had positions of glory and honour and great status amongst God's people are now going to be despised and humiliated amongst God's people, carried away, feces smeared on their faces, despised and humiliated. Either the Lord Almighty sees every sin of ungodly pastors. He sees it. Hypocritical living, corrupt teaching, Abusive leadership. He sees it and it fills him with rage. I don't know all of your stories here, but there's a, there's a real word here for you. If you're, you yourself have been a victim of an ungodly pastor, perhaps you've been misled or, or wounded or just downright abused by some Christian leader. You sit here today and you're just filled with anger, rage. You can relate to these words. Maybe if you did have a thing of feces, you wouldn't mind rubbing it in that person's face. So you should know that as angry as you are at those ungodly leaders, God is more angry, much more angry. But even though it might seem like those leaders are getting away with what they're doing, rest assured that one day God will make them pay. He knows that those leaders have been a stumbling block, that they've tarnished the glory of his name, that they've led people away from Christ. And the most important thing for you is that you don't let one of these ungodly pastors cause you to be among those who stumble. What a tragedy if you were to turn away from Christ and his church because of some Christian leader who God says deserves nothing more than to have feces smeared in his face. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? Don't let that happen to you. Don't get sucked in by some jerk that God is outraged with. Find yourself a church with a godly pastor. One who does a much better job, not perfect, but a much better job of embodying the characteristics, particularly in verses 4 to 7. Let's have a look at these. The first characteristic of this more godly pastor is in verse 5. God says, My covenant was with him, that's with Levi, a covenant of life and peace. 
and I gave them uh, to him. This, uh, this called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. So, so God said he, he formed this covenant with Levi and, and the tribe of Levi, right, for them to act as priests of the people of Israel. Right? And as with all covenants, the, the two parties to this covenant made commitments to one another. You see them there. God's part uh, was that he promised that through this covenant, through the priesthood, he was going to bring blessing to his people, right? life and peace. What about the priests? What, what were they supposed to do? Well, you see it there. They were called to revere their God to honour God, to, to stand in awe of his name. So you see the problem with the priests in, uh, in Malachi's day, the priests who had resolved not to honour God's name. But the, the one requirement of God's covenant with the priests was that they would stand in awe of him, that they would revere him, and yet here these priests are making a mockery of God. This is the first mark of a godly pastor. We touched on this before, but the pastor must truly revere God's name, stand in awe of God. So their whole ministry is driven by a desire to see other people join them in revering God as he deserves. That's just something that oozes out of them in every way. That's the first mark, right? A genuine commitment to, to bringing glory to God, to, to standing in awe of his name. The second mark of a godly pastor is that they're committed to both preserving and proclaiming God's truth. Have a look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, True instruction was found in, in Levi's mouth. Likewise, verse 7. The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. And people seek instruction from his mouth. So so the godly pastor is someone with a firm commitment to preserving the truth of God's word. They're really committed uh, to not allowing the knowledge of God uh, to be distorted or perverted in any way. Thoroughly committed to that. Uh, They're also committed to proclaiming the truth of God's word. Not just defensive, kind of guarding, preserving, but proclaiming. right? Because they understand that they are a messenger of the Lord Almighty, a messenger. I said this maybe in my first sermon on Malachi, but it's important, right? I do not get up here every Sunday simply to share some of my clever ideas, right? Or some spiritual tips or tell some funny stories. Or Why do I get up here every Sunday in my best attempt to preserve and proclaim God's word? To preserve and proclaim. That's what I'm called to. That's part of the covenant between God and a pastor. Third, the godly pastor has a firm commitment to a life of devotion and holiness. Have a look in verse 7. This is, this is the life of devotion. See there, Levi walked with God. Walked with God. Uh, there's lots of demands uh, on the life of a pastor. And a pastor might know really well how to lead a meeting or to write a budget or develop develop a bunch of new strategies or teams or systems. Right? A pastor might know how to do those things. And probably if the church is going to grow, they do need to, have, need to know how to do those things. But one qualification a pastor must have is that it must be evident to the people in their church that they are genuinely walking with the Lord. That must be evident Right, so the crowd said of Peter and John in Acts 4, when they saw their courage and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus, you see. 
Right? That's a pastor. Someone that you say, that man has been with the Lord. He loves his Lord. He walks with his Lord. He's devoted to his Lord. Has a life of real devotion. I think that's the first thing. And that life of walking with the Lord shows in his character. So look in verse 7. Uh, Levi walked with God in peace and uprightness. Right? So it's a life of holiness. Right? He's walking with his holy God, so he's committed to a life of holiness. Right? Verse 6. Nothing false was found on his lips. Now, one level, that's just a picture of the truthfulness of his teaching. But we know that Jesus said that it's out of the overflow of the uh, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. You know, there's a connection between our lips and the cleanness of our hearts. So, in in reference to the lips here, uh, saying that the, the pastor has nothing false on his lips, it's saying that in his heart he's a man of honesty and integrity and truthfulness. So the godly pastor, three things so far. They have a genuine commitment to God's glory, a genuine commitment to preserving and proclaiming God's word, and a genuine commitment to a life of devotion and holiness. What's the result of that kind of ministry? Well, it doesn't lead people to destruction, but to salvation. You see, at the end end of there, this kind of pastor will turn many people away from sin. Not causing them to stumble, but turn people away from sin. So there's, there's two portraits in this passage. A portrait of ungodly pastors who really are contemptible to God and bring a curse on others. And on the other hand, godly pastors who, who, are, to be, who are sort of honoured and lifted up by God and are a blessing to others, bringing life and peace. So all I can say is, please pray. Please, please pray for me. Pray that I would be a godly pastor. And please pray for the elders of this church. Pray that they would be godly pastors of the flock here. Please pray regularly for gospel community leaders. Pray that they've got a little flock that's been entrusted to them. Pray that they'd be godly pastors. We need God's help. We need God's help to do this. But let me say that when I and other leaders in our church fail you, I already have, I will again, uh, when none of us are perfect. But when we fail, in those moments, let's all kind of lift our eyes together to Jesus. Let's be a church that does that. Focusing our eyes on Jesus, our great high priest. We heard that from Hebrews. Jesus, It's Jesus who's our perfect pastor. The only pastor who's never departed from God's ways. Right? The only pastor who's never distorted the truth, either by his words or his deeds. Who's never done anything that wasn't motivated by a completely pure desire for the glory of his Father in heaven. Right? It's Jesus who is our perfect pastor, our great high priest. Right? And because of that, because Jesus perfectly discharged his duties as our great high priest, we can rest assured, Hebrews 7, that his once for all sacrifice for our sins has been accepted by God. We can be accepted by God through trusting in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because he was raised from the dead, we can also rest assured that he lives and reigns at our Father's right hand and that he prays for us. He prays to our Father on our behalf, uh, saying, this one is mine. That one is mine. I died to pay the penalty for their sins, so they are welcome in our presence. 
I should say, even if you do decide to have me as your pastor, officially, tonight, I hope that that wouldn't mean that your eyes are fixed on me. As a godly pastor, I should be pointing you towards Jesus, our great high priest, our perfect pastor. And so that's, I guess we wanted to sing a couple of songs in the next part of our service that maybe help us to do that. I'm going to read the words of the next song that we're going to sing. It will hopefully, hopefully help us to respond in a, in a prayerful song. Here's the words. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Uh, let me just pray briefly and then we're going to sing this song. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this passage that teaches us so much about um, what you want from your leaders amongst your people, of what you want and what you don't want. Uh, please, Father, give uh, us as a church wisdom as we decide who ought to be the pastor of this church. Help our criteria for that to be uh, shaped by our knowledge of your word, uh, not by other things. Uh, most of all, Father, I pray that uh, when I fail and other leaders fail, uh, that you would lift our eyes together to, uh, to fix them on our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is our great high priest, he is our perfect pastor, our good shepherd, are the only way who are the only one who has never let us down and never will let us down. Please, Father, uh, encourage us in our spirits this day to fix our eyes on Him, even as we sing this song. We pray, Amen.